If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Tom Richter, and uh, I have uh, become a fast friend of City on a Hill Community Church. I'm a pastor of a church in Queens, New York, and we meet in the evening time, 6 o'clock, so I'll leave here and buzz back to Queens and be back in time uh, to have our Sunday morning service, which is 6 o'clock at night. Uh, and uh, so uh, that, that explains, like, why is this pastor here, but uh, just a friend of the Lecce's, and... Um, uh, if we've never met, I would like that chance to get to know you and to find out your story. And just a little bit of an addition to my story, um, I am the father of two kids, but now it seems uh, <laughs> that uh, Jackie and I are expecting our third. So, And I was uh, trying to think of a really clever way to share it with the church, and I couldn't. Uh, I'm just excited and uh, pray for us. Uh, do sometime around no- uh, 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 Thanksgiving, sometime around November. And I, I just real quick, just indulge me real quick. I was, I was uh, really wanting a minivan. I, I, I want a minivan, you know. I, and uh, for some reason, I don't know if this is like if you're married, if this is your experience. But the, the, in my experience and some of the guys I've talked to, it's the guy that's like, dude, I get, I'm a dad, okay? It d- I'm, I'm done. No more Mustang. It's minivan or whatever. Like, I'm the first to throw in the white flag. But my wife was, no, no, no. Because once you go minivan, it's elastic in the jeans. It's, I mean, it's a whole lifestyle. It's, you've mailed it in. You're a mom. Give it up. So, like, SUV, SUV. So, we were doing this, right? And we were going and, and actually, like, shopping for SUVs and all that stuff. Fine, okay. And it's like holding on to the last vestige of coolness. Like, before you just give it up, we're, we're parents. And, uh, and then... Um, uh, one day she just uh, says, you know what, I'm, I'm okay with the minivan. And I was like, are you sure? Because I don't want to like talk you into this and you resent me when you're thinking SUV and all that. She's like, no, 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 I'm cool. And I'm like, wow, I, that's great. You know, I'm thinking, and then I said, but I got to ask, like, what was it that changed your mind? And then she pulls out the test. She's like, we're pregnant. I was like, oh, so that, that's like how she told me. It was like, <laughs> and she reminds me that my reaction was, yes, a minivan, instead of like, yes, human life. And I'm like, <laughs> messed that one up, but uh, anyway, um, so we're getting a minivan, I think. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things when I uh, first became a Christian, and one of the things I think a lot of people who are sort of on the fence, you know, um, John mentioned that earlier, that if you're here today and you've never really made that transfer of trust to becoming a believer, you've never really, you're a person that would say, I don't know that I've ever accepted Jesus into my heart to be my personal Lord and Savior, or you're somebody who would say, I don't know, I'm just, I'm here, I mean, I'm checking things out, uh, but I don't know that I've ever really committed to being a full follower of Jesus, a disciple, a, a Christian, I'm not even sure what that means. One of the things that you might be thinking that many people, and I know I, from early in my walk, that it's... I, I had this notion, I had this definition of what a Christian was. And fundamentally, what it came down to was just some lifestyle stuff. You know what I'm saying? I kind of said, well, a Christian is that person I know who lives better than other people. They just live a better life. They're more moral. And when I come to church, I want to be surrounded by people and they're more moral and they live better. Christians are the people who are more loving. They're doing stuff for the poor. And if I become a Christian, I'll be more moral. Christians are the people who, you know, when they hit their hand with a hammer, they say, no, you know, 
they're, they're, they're the ones who somehow they don't drink too much, and they never drink to excess, and they don't swear. And, and the biggest thing is purity. They don't, they're not engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality, the stuff that I seem tempted with all the time, and yet I guess when I become a Christian, that stuff will just dissipate. And, and, and politically, to be a Christian means to have very strict political views. A lot of times in this nation, you hear Christianity, you think gay marriage and abortion. You think that, that that's, that's what it all is all about. And those are the main points, and I have to adopt some of, those, um, some of those stances that maybe I agree with or I don't agree with, but we feel like that, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to all these uh, moralistic choices, which explains a lot of things. One, it explains why when you come to church, you're floored to discover people who don't have it all together, right? Like your kid comes back from the children's ministry and you're like, where'd you learn those words? Church. What? Like trying to upgrade you. And now, look, right? And we are shocked. We are floored. Why? Because it pulls out the very rug, the very foundation, lifestyle choices. We are shocked to discover when we, were, when we ourselves become Christians that we didn't instantly become nice. Why am I still struggling with this thing? Oh, and the sexual immorality piece. What happens? It's like we should be beyond that. And yet it's still rampant, even Right? Like Kierkegaard says, what would happen if we discovered a real-life sinner among the righteous? You know? right? Now, here's where it gets hard. As a, someone who tries to proclaim truth to people, here's where it gets hard. And, and you know, Pastor Joe and Pastor Linda and Pastor James, they, they, surely they feel this. That the minute you would say, well, then, is that wrong? Like, is, if the main point of Christianity is living better, I, what pastor would say... It's none of that, right? We'd be foolish. Of course, listen, if you become a Christian, of course. Like, of course, we want to create an environment where kids grow up in the knowledge. And of course, we want lives to look better. And of course, we want more freedom from sin, not less. And so, the minute you're ready to say, as a pastor, when you see all this legalism and all this guilt, you're ready to say, so it's none of that. None of that morality stuff matters. The instant you say that, then you're like, well, but I mean, some of it does, you know, right? You see what I mean? How do you, how do you not throw the baby out with the bathwater? How do you say lifestyle? It, explain it like this. There's a, you know, my, um, my four-year-old uh, wanted to watch the NBA playoffs, I, I guess. I was watching and told her that's what we're watching. So I, and she was uh, curious because they were just, you know, yeah, when they'd win, they were rejoicing. And she's like, what are they so happy about? And I tried to explain to them that putting this round piece of leather through this round piece of iron, here's a million dollars. I tried to explain that whole concept of sport and realize sort of how ridiculous the whole thing was. But anyway, so excited, right? And I said, because this is the greatest thing that they can do. This is their, their great joy. And, you know, she was thinking C.S. Lewis tells this story, and he uses a different analogy, and of course he tells it better than I do. But imagine if my little daughter, my four-year-old, her greatest joy would be, I don't know, eating um, chocolates. Like, that's her thing, you know, and she's eating chocolate, and that's the greatest thing she can imagine. And she's looking at these NBA playoffs and the amount of joy and all that stuff. Wouldn't she ask me if I said, that's great pleasure, and in her mind, she's thinking pleasure, chocolate. Would, would it be illogical, would it be a weird question if she said to me, so then, like, do they eat chocolate during the NBA playoff? Like, while they're playing, is that they must be consuming chocolate? And it would sort of blow her mind if I said, well, well no, no, they don't, they don't eat chocolate while they're doing the NBA playoffs and they're playing and stuff. They, they don't eat chocolate. 
then when she leaves, if you asked her, you'd say, what's the main point of the NBA playoffs? She would say, not eating chocolate. <laughs> now, I've either lost everybody or I've, like, <laughs> dropped a C.S. Lewis bomb of wisdom on you, right? The main point in her mind when I told her that, and to me it was like a weird question, but like that's what she associates great pleasure. And so when she sees someone having great pleasure, I say, well, no, 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 they don't eat chocolate. But that's more of a byproduct of the fact that why would you be eating chocolate when you're having this awesome NBA final? But for her, the takeaway, the lesson, the thing, when she thinks basketball, it's ergo no chocolate, right? To which you would say, I guess not eating chocolate, yes, that is technically a byproduct. I mean, you don't see, like, you know, LeBron having a Rolo as he's, you know, trying to dribble down. I guess that's true, but there's nobody in here that would say that's the main point, that that's the takeaway. It's just sort of a really cool byproduct that you don't eat chocolate while you're playing basketball. But it's not the point. Does that make sense? That, that, that's, that's it. When it comes to Christianity, when you look around, you see Christians and their lives are more moral or they don't have a heart that instantly is so filled with anger that it bubbles out into swear words all the time or they have a heart that, that has self-control and moderation or whatever moral quality you admire, I think you'd want to say, that's a really cool byproduct of something else. It's not the, the end-all, be-all main point of Christianity. Does that make sense? A good moral life is a really cool byproduct. But to associate that, that's Christianity, that's the fundamental thing, you'd say, well, no. That, I mean, that's like saying the, the most important part of the NBA is not eating chocolate or something. It's it, just a byproduct. Um, and so if you saw two people, both who were living really good moral lives, you've got to know more than that. You've got to know what's the motivation, what's the, what's the driving force behind that. And that's what I want to talk about today. How do we live lives of Christians that are filled with service? Pastor Linda mentioned washing one another's feet. That's the exact text we're going to look at in just a moment. But how do we do that? How do we live a life of service, of being moral, that, that, kind, of, that kind of servant mentality that Jesus had? How do we do that from a motivation that's the right motivation, that's coming from the right place, that's not a motivation of guilt, right, or insecurity, or trying to somehow earn our moral stature before God? What is it that helps us? What's going to help us serve in that way? Because you could have two servants serving, and one could be miserable, and one could be full of the overflow of joy and peace, right? And those two people often are the same person, just different stage in, in the life. Haven't, haven't many of us been there where you could be doing the exact same thing? But motivation matters. And the springboard, the overflow from which that motivation comes really matters. Uh, there's a, a great episode of The Simpsons where um, <laughs> Principal Skinner comes on and says, All honor, attention, all honor roll students will be rewarded today. With a trip to an archaeological dig. And Lisa Simpson and all her nerdy friends are like, Woohoo! Yeah! And then he follows it with, And all detention students will be punished today with a trip to an archaeological dig. And they're all like, Brah! Yeah. It's the same thing. But that's what I mean. It's like when I say serve the Lord with everything you got, I want that to come from a place where there's a certain amount of buoyancy, there's a certain amount of joy. And yet I could say those same words, serve the Lord with everything you've got, and all you hear is another condemnation. 
just another guilt, just another burden. It was hard enough to be a good person before I came to God. Now i got to please him too. It was hard enough to please my ex. Didn't do so well with that. Now i got to please God. Right? It was hard enough to please that professor that failed me. How am I going to ple- please God? That's just a human being, right? And those frustrations, they just get heaped on over and over. One last illustration before I uh, uh, show you the example. Um, uh, and that's, uh, it, it comes from about 10 years ago, and it's personal. It happened about 10 years ago. This book comes out, uh, 2000 or 2001, and I mean, it just swept the nation by storm. And there's no real explaining why. But David McCullough writes this epic biography of our second president, John Adams. And this massive tome, this is the paperback. But I mean, did anybody remember this book? This thing, yeah, okay, right. And the people who did were like, yeah, I mean, they're with me, right? Yeah. This thing sweeps the nation, and this becomes the book. I can't explain it, but I'm telling you, John Adams' fever was sweeping, apparently, my nation. Not, your, not any of your nation, but... Uh, right? But, I mean, it's everywhere. And people are talking about, oh, what insights. And Dave McCullough is this great biographer. And, I mean, right? This, okay, wins the Pulitzer Prize. Everybody's talking about it. And the circles I run in, the, the, these pastoral meetings, even at Christian meetings, these pastors are meeting one another. And none of the pastors are saying, oh, hey, um, you know, uh, by the way, I just read this great book of theology. What they're all talking about is this book. They're talking about John. Oh, it was riveting. And the founding fathers and their faith. Have you considered? Have you pondered? And it became the right book to read it became the cool book to read and i remember being so insecure because i'm going to all these meetings going i don't i I haven't read it right but i knew it was the right book to read you're supposed to be reading this book everybody's reading this book and they're talking about on npr and it's like this is the book that smart people read this is the book that cool people like you know when you go to a really fancy restaurant this is great food you're like i'd rather have a pizza but you know but this is the food you're supposed to like you know that feeling and you're so insecure about it, right? So that's what everybody's doing. So I go to Barnes & Noble, and I bought this copy in 2002, and I pull it off the shelf, and I begin, doggone it, I'm go- I am smart, and I'm going to be smart. And this is, back then I didn't know James Lecce. I could have been like, read this book and tell me what it says. You know, I've already read it at 4 a.m. on a treadmill, backwards, because that's how I read it. I read it like Hebrew or whatever. Well, you're not human, but the rest of us, Need you to, like, Cliff's notes this for me, but I'm going to do it. I didn't know James then, so I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'll teach him to miss church when I'm not here, I know. <clears throat> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And I remember, look, I mean, I remember the notes. Look, like, I'm, I'm trying so hard, and I'm grinding through this thing. And I'm reading a page, and I'm, oh, just bored out of my mind. Right? <laughs> can't stand it but it's the right book and the more you know the worst part i felt guilty that i didn't love it like i should have that was the worst part i'm sitting here like there's this massive tome and i'm supposed to read this massive great book this great writing and i feel guilty that i don't even love it and the people that i know that that love it are all loving it and they're great people and i should do that and it was just a fail i I made it through 22 pages (laughs) of this book and I would go to these meetings, man, like, invariably it would come up, hey, have you read this? Uh, I've been reading this book on John Adams. I'm like, yeah, I've read it. Because I had read 22 pages of it. And, they would, and then I just remember praying, like, please ask me about something that happened in the first 22 pages, you know. <laughs> ask me about his dad or his birth. Otherwise, anyway, um, 
So it was a massive failure. And then in uh, 2009, my wife and I were moving. And uh, you know how you move, you move, and you're so excited early in the morning, and then late in the move, you just like, like if you ever need free stuff, just go to somebody who's moving at about 4 o'clock that night. They will give you their hot, whatever, take it. Yeah, I'm not moving that. Yes. I don't care. It's yes. It is in, it's an urn from the 14th century. I don't care. Whatever. You're just exhausted. So I decided, you know, I'm, I'm moving all stuff. I'm looking at these I'm looking at these boxes and everything, and there he is, you know, and he's, he po- in 2009, this guy's popping up, and he's looking, let me look at him, the way he's judging you, even as he's like, I fought a war, became president, what have you done with your life, you know, you're like, um, anyway, in 2009, it's no longer cool to read, I don't know if you know this, but it's no longer cool to read a Pulitzer Prize that was like 10 years ago, so in 2009, I pick it up with no cool points to be gained. And with really nothing, you know, it's not a sign, there's no guilt. And I'm like, you know, I tried this once, and, you know, the only other thing to do would be to unload boxes. And so I just sort of sit down and and begin reading this. And after, um, I mean, you you know where this story's going, right? I mean, it's almost less cool. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's almost that guy who comes up to you that's like, hey, I just discovered this thing. Uh, You should get in on it. It's called uh, the Facebooks or whatever. You're like, a little late to that party. You know, it's almost, it's like less just move on to the next technology, like skip a generation, right? But for whatever reason, I started reading it, and then like another page and another page, and this time there's no note-taking, there's no beating myself up, there's no insecurity, and I couldn't put it down. It was gripping. And my poor wife's like, are you going to bed? I don't know, I gotta see what happens to the wacky federalists or what, you know, (laughs) so into it. Now you tell me what's the difference. You tell me what's the difference. I mean, I, maybe, maybe it's that I was older. Um, okay, maybe it's that I was a different place. I get that. Sometimes you just need to be at a different season in your life. But I don't think it's any of that. You know, isn't it something that what we think should make us do better stuff, guilt, pressure, and insecurity, actually never do. And maybe my message for you this morning is quit. Quit. And when those things fall away and you realize, you know what, I don't need anybody's approval. You know, who am I trying to please? You know what, I began reading that John Adams book out of a very different place. I began reading it out of this place called love. I just did it for the love of the thing. And that's amazing. And the more I thought about it, that happens in in many areas of our life. Ask a high school English teacher, what's the best way to ruin a book? Assign it. You got high school kids that if you just said, hey, I bet you would never read To Kill a Mockingbird just over the summer. You, in fact, don't read it. You're not allowed to read To Kill a Mockingbird. And if I see you, you're in trouble. What are they like sneaking out at night? <laughs> right? But the minute you say, read this book and, and do a report on it, right? So where does that kind of servanthood, where does that, isn't that something? Do you see the point I'm making? There's a big difference between doing a deed, however noble, in order to earn approval Versus doing that same deed without the fear, without, the, without the, the guilt stripped of all that. Just doing it from some totally different place. Drawing from some totally different reservoir of, of human energy to do an, a deed or an act of service or an act of kindness. And it's at this point in the sermon where you think if only, if only there were some example we could turn to in moments like this. If only there was some ancient book of scripture or wisdom that would have some. And, and there is, it's the Bible. In John chapter 13, 
Jesus says in John 13, verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Turn with me to John chapter 13. <clears throat> These uh, uh, guys have been gracious enough to put up the scriptures up here on the, on the um, screens. And so if that helps you, otherwise turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. They're going to start in verse 1, and rightfully so, but I'll go ahead and tell you the ending. Jesus says, I've... I've set you an example, 15 verses from now, he's going to say, I set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So here's the example. How did he do this? How did he do it? Well, let's first see what he did. Okay. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Now, if you're new to the Bible or you're new to church, uh, you need to understand Jesus was Jewish. God selected the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and he made a very special promise to them. He said... I am going to make a great name. I'm going to bless the world through you, through this group of people, the Israelite people. I'm going to bless the world. And one of the things I'm going to do to prepare for that, that great blessing, to prepare for the coming of the Messiah Jesus, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some festivals. I'm going to give you some laws, some commandments. I'm going to do all this stuff to prepare. And, and, and one of the things every year you're going to celebrate that I got you out of Egypt with this Passover. Uh, 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 and you can read about that in Exodus. But, but we're going to go back to that every year. And you're going to sacrifice this Passover lamb. And the blood of the lamb is going to be, you know, was applied that day to the doors of the people. And anywhere where the blood was, the angel of death passed right over. That's why they call it Passover. And so there's all this historical significance. But what you need to know is that because a lamb was slain, the people who applied the blood of that lamb to their life were spared the wrath of God because they were identified as the people of God. Let me say that one more time. What you need to know is that year after every year, year after year, a lamb was slain. And that lamb's death meant the people of God could be identified by the application of that lamb's blood to their life. Spared the wrath of God, identified as the people of God. Jesus is going to be crucified and he's going to stretch out his arms and die on Passover. As if to drive that point home once and for all. The Lamb of God, see, was slain. And everybody who applies the blood of the Lamb to their life is identif identified as the people of God. Avoiding his wrath and gaining his great salvation. That's it. It was just before, now you know that Passover feast and the significance, and that explains this next part. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. That means he's going to be crucified, die, and be buried, and, raise, and, and ascend to the Father after the resurrection. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of the love. Or another translation of that, he, he, he loved them to the last. He loved them to the end. Hold on to that. That's a neat thought. He loved them all the way to the end, the full extent. Didn't go halfway. Went all the way. You know how there's, uh, there's two ways to do a marriage? You know, like in your marriage, you can either say everything's 50-50. I'll meet you 50-50. I'll meet you 50-50. And that's a good way to compromise on stuff and to meet in the middle. The trouble is nobody agrees on where the middle is. So the other way to do a marriage is I love you unconditionally And I'll go a hundred, you go a hundred And the middle's wherever you cross I'll go all the way There's nothing I wouldn't do for you I love you unconditionally And there's nothing you wouldn't do for me And so it turns out whatever the middle is Is where that attitude of, of submission to one another That Ephesians chapter 5 talks about It's where that attitude crosses And Jesus, it's not like I'll go 50% He loved them to the end, all the way. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served. 
And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus knew about Judas Iscariot, but more importantly, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He was rock solid sure of his relationship with God. You cannot repeat this enough. Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he was. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going. So he did what? Now what would you expect him to do in this point? Jesus knew who he was, okay? And he was rock solid certain of who he was. And part of being who he was meant that he was co-eternal with God the Father. That means that in the flesh, Jesus was God. To look upon Jesus was to look upon God in human flesh. And so when he says all authority, he knows exactly who he is. What would you expect the next verse to say? So he did what? So he got up and he looked at his disciples and he said... Coronation time. Bring me a crown, right? Crown me, guys. I mean, something like that. Uh, 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 Some sort of power, uh, some sort of mighty display. Like, I sort of expected, because he knew what was going on with Judas and all that stuff, Jesus knew that he had all the authority. And because he knew all this stuff, he stood up and he smote Judas with a mighty lightning bolt or something like that, right? To show God's glory. (sighs) You know, uh, something like that. But the last thing we would have expected is exactly what he does. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, you can imagine the shock. Uh, Washing feet wasn't altogether shocking. That was a pretty common custom. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they didn't have these nice paved roads and sidewalks like we have today, and they're walking around in these sandals and these dry and dusty roads. Uh, There's no need to belabor this point, just simply to say that livestock and humans shared a road. Uh, Okay, I will belabor it more. Um, So that means that, okay. uh, uh, So then you would gather for a meal and... uh, they would recline at these meals. So you got feet up on couches and stuff. Now, just sort of do the math with me. You've been walking where donkeys walk. You're eating food next to, my, next to the feet of somebody who's, right? Okay, so you don't need a full-blown bath, but we think of washing our hands to eat. And, you know, that was certainly a part of a tradition, too. Actually, the Pharisees talk about that. It's a different sermon. But, but, you know, washing the hands. But then you would also wash the feet. You don't need a full-blown bath. You don't need a full shower. You're not disgustingly dirty. But where your feet have been walking, it'd be nice to get those cleaned up. And so before you have a meal, the host would wash your feet. Or if the host had enough money and had servants, those servants would wash the feet. It's going to come up in just a second that you don't need a, a bath. He actually talks about that with Peter. But you just need... For these purposes, your feet to be clean. And so servants would do it for their masters, right? Uh, uh, disciples, how about this? Disciples would do it because it's, it, it's symbolic and it's also, um, it's also uh, I talked about the practical thing, but it's also symbolic. You can see how that would be a very humbling act. 
And so not only was it, it performed a really nice function, people's feet were clean and then smelled nice and, uh, instead of being uh, uh, all dusty and dirty. So it performed a nice function. But more than that, it was also symbolic of humbling oneself. You know, the host, you're coming into my house. You, you know, what, what I have is yours. I'm serving you. Or a servant would, would serve and wipe the feet. Disciples would do this for their rabbi. So it's not like this was out of nowhere and Jesus was just inventing this new thing. Disciples would do this for the rabbi. And as I'm reading this in the commentaries, I read that in some ancient Near East customs, when the men would return from their work, wives would... Doesn't matter, I won't even... uh, Right? So I'm not saying, like, try this, but I'm saying that wives would do it for their husband as a way of, in the ancient Near East, of showing respect. Okay, you're with me. The point is that, simply, a dirty, smelly job reserved as a way of showing honor and giving dignity to the one being washed. None of that is unusual. What is totally unusual is that Jesus is the one doing the washing, right? That's what flips the script, not the fact that, oh, this is some crazy custom. What's, what's he doing? Why would you, you know, want to wash my feet? No, no, no. It's that, what are you doing? And Simon Peter points out that very thing. Look at the next verse. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you are going to wash my feet? And Jesus answers cryptically, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Let let me serve you. Okay, so so we've flipped all these things on their head, and I'm trying to tell you that, like, earning your standing before God because you you claw your way there, right? Let's say you could be moral enough to get to God, or let's say you could do whatever habits you're imagining right now, you're imagining God's posture towards you, and it's disappointment, and you're saying, what would turn that disappointment into a smile of God's pleasure towards you? What do you need to change? What is it? What sin bouncing around? Even if you could do all that, here, Jesus flips that on its head. And Peter's saying, you know, if I'm going to be your disciple, I've got to serve you. I've got to wash your feet. I've got to do all those things. And Jesus says something interesting. Unless you let this happen the other way around, unless you let me come to you. See, you're thinking, i got to climb this ladder to get to God. Unless you will allow God to descend the ladder to come to you. Unless you will humble yourself and say, what I need is not more morality in my life or more intelligence. What I need is to be cleansed by you. I need to be rescued. Okay, I admit, I am sick. I am sick with sin, and I need a doctor. I can't heal myself. Until that moment of humility happens, I've got no part with you. Because the self-made need not apply. I came for the sick, not the healthy, right? I can't, I can't do anything with you unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. It remains a single seed. God can't give life to something that won't die to itself, you see. So he's saying, unless you'll humble yourself, unless you'll receive me, I have no part with you. And then Simon, good old Simon, one extreme to the other. Totally, it obviously makes sense with him. The light bulb goes off. So he's like, well then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, my hands, my head, everything. Jesus says, all right, all right. A person who is at a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. What I think he's saying to Simon was, okay, I wasn't talking about your salvation specifically. You've been with me, Simon. You're, you're, you've allowed this. We've had these humbling moments But not everyone is clean. Verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. He was talking about Judas. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked him. You called me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. You see, a great act of service was done. And, and here at the end, it, it, he's saying, I, I've done this as an example. Now you have to do this. That, that makes it really important to me. It's not, in other words, this question is not just academic of how do we serve like Jesus? How, if we're Christian, how, from what motivation, from what wellspring does that kind of service happen? It's not an academic question because he says, I've done this as an example. Now you go and serve one another. Sometimes you, like, look, sometimes in the Bible, Jesus would just do a miracle. And it's not an example to follow. You can't. It's a, it's a truth to proclaim. He is God. Jesus is out there walking on the water. He didn't do that. It's like, Jesus walked on the water, and now I want all of you to go to the water and walk and walk on it. That's my example. Follow that, right? He's saying, look, I'm showing you I'm God. There are times where it's just this to be worth. But then there are times like this where he says, no, this is an example. Do what I have done. Serve one another. No teacher is uh, no student is greater than his teacher. No uh, servant is greater than his master. So how? How do we do that? Now, this should tie it all together. Uh, 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 it goes back to the, 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 the point I've, try, I've been trying to make from the very beginning. We think, and every other religion in the world would say, and common sense would say, the way you get people to serve, the way I get myself to serve, is do what every other pattern in the world does, and that's guilt my way into serving, insecure my way into serving, legalize my way, try to legislate my way into, into servanthood. Does that make sense? That, that's how we talk to one another. That's often how we talk to ourselves, right? Get this right. Why won't you get this right? And then all you have to do, and this ties in exactly what, what, what Linda was saying. She was praying, avoid this kind of mentality when giving the offering. But all you have to do is, is just, just dangle it a little bit with a little bit of manipulation, you know, mixed with a little bit of guilt and fear. And all you have to do is say stuff like this. Well, you think you're saved, but you know your life, you know, you need to be backing it up or else, you know, you might not know, you know. You see? You see what you're doing there? As a preacher, you're just withholding a little bit. You know, you say, oh, the gospel's for everybody. It's full and free. You are accepted. You are, you know, uh, uh, holy in the eyes of God. You are accepted because of what Jesus did on the cross. But, you know, you, you, you know, you got you know, you to do your part, you see. And what are we doing? We're, we're, we're saying, well, we, you know, got to raise the bar. You got to give you just enough insecurity where you can't be too certain of who you are. Add to that a little bit of fear, a little bit of guilt, a little bit of pressure. And guilt Guilt's a funny thing. Guilt is a great motivator for about a week. Isn't that true? I mean, how many of you have tried to, I don't know, take on a habit of running in the morning? And you got there from guilt. You, you, it's really great. You're like, oh, I've been such a loser. I've been such a slacker. Look at me. Oh, oh my clothes don't fit. I'm going to do this, right? So you set your alarm. You know with these smartphones, it's not just an alarm. It actually has a little, you can type in a message. So you set your alarm that says, get up. And then you know you're going to snooze. So five minutes later, get up, fatty. And then five minutes later, seriously, lie there. I don't care. Die. You know, or whatever. It is. You're telling yourself, right? You may wonder how I know those notes can be written in a smartphone to yourself. Uh, and so you're reading, like I've thought about self-talk, huh? Like I'm actually telling myself this is, that you're never going to change who you are. Why? Guilt. And that stuff is so effective for about a week. But you'll never love like Jesus did to the end. 
You'll never experience the full extent of love. And you'll never have, you'll never have what Jesus had here, this ability to serve. When the world would say crown yourself or the world would say destroy your enemies, to do the right thing at the right time just to walk in the free and easy rhythms of God's grace. That will never happen. Uh, I don't know uh, how many different ways I can say it, but I'll just try again. Serving God in order to please God versus serving God because we please God makes all the difference in the world. Turn back with me to uh, verse 2 and we'll be done. He knew what was happening. The, um, verse 3. The evening meal is being prepared. Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up and did that whole story we just read. One more time. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew he had come from God and was returning to God. He knew who he was. And because he knew who he was, that changed everything. That's all I'm trying to say. Do you know who you are? And if you do, you serve out of the overflow of his love. And what I'm trying to say is, in it, we, okay, we tell ourselves, but that won't work. That'll lead to, if I know who I am, right? If I know that I'm accepted by a holy God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, it'll lead to laziness. I won't be motivated to work because I won't be earning my salvation. And what I'm trying to say is the opposite is actually true. It will never work until you know who you are. Otherwise, you're just sort of grinding through the first 22 pages of your salvation, going, why is this so hard? Right? When will I ever please you, God? And to be honest, I don't really enjoy this. And then you feel guilty for not enjoying it. I really should love the Bible more, but, oh, right? But instead, knowing who I am, it forms a a bedrock, a, I don't know, a wellspring. I'm mixing all my metaphors. I'm just trying to say serving God in order to gain his approval versus serving God because you have his approval. The foundation of Christianity being doing a bunch of moral things or the foundation of Christianity being the gospel, the good news that Jesus has made God and humans, enemies, right? Jesus has made peace between God and me, God and you, that which was at enmity, is now at peace. So uh, it also allowed Jesus to do very mundane things. And I know that you know, this may seem so epic, but it, it, this means that you'll be able to serve your family uh, from this wellspring of life. This means if you're a married person, you'll be able to do that sort of 100-100 type of service one another. It means if you're a single person, you'll have the faith and the, 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 the trust to be a good steward of your singleness and to serve him in uh, these areas. But you'll do it in a way that doesn't lead to burnout or insecurity or guilt. But just mundane things. Like, for example, Jesus just washes feet. You know, we feel such pressure. I've got to make impact. I've got to have results. Well, with Jesus, you, you know, you've got to have obedience that comes from a knowledge of who you are. And he'll take care of the results. He'll do it. Jesus just, Jesus just did the most natural, next, obedient thing to do. And wash the disciples' feet. No more, no less. And so is what he calls us to do. That's it. I... Uh, I don't want to leave you hanging too much and uh, left with, okay, so, you know, <clears throat> know who I am, know who I am, know who I am. What, what, like, what does that look like? What, you know, what do I need to, to do? I, but then I'm not supposed to do something. I'm just supposed to know who I am. Um, uh, God has uh, not left us hanging, so to speak. He's given us uh, a couple places you could look. But to know who you are, one is his word. 
and to dive into his word so, so deeply that you know who you are. One of the illustrations I've been encouraging with my church back home is, uh, uh, well, I, I told you I preach at night, and there's this row of windows off to my left. It gets real hot. There's no air conditioning in the summer. And uh, anyway, because it's 6 o'clock, during, right around May and June, the sun comes right in. And so I'm trying to be a good preacher, and I'm, like, making eye contact with my people, you know, like they tell you in public speaking. And I'll look over here and just, and I get blinded. And so as I continue to look at people, I, don't, I see them. But all I can really see is this big sort of nebulous blob of sun that's been burned into my retina. You know what I'm saying? I want you to stare. I want you to open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want you to stare at the empty tomb until it's burned into your retina. And your problems will look different against the backdrop of an empty tomb. I want you to stare at Jesus. See, this could just be a moral self-help thing. But Jesus is offering, he's not saying here, just like do better. This is a relationship. You know what I'm saying? If, if the tomb, if Jesus didn't leave that empty tomb, this sermon and all my sermons are really pointless and worthless. But what I'm saying is he's alive. And he wants to move and work and guide you through this, a relationship. So that's one place to find out who you are. Because you got to go somewhere to learn who you are. If you go to yourself, that's no help. Sometimes our hearts condemn us. We need someone greater than our hearts. We need the maker of our hearts. You can go out here and determine who you are. You can go down to Walmart right down there. They'll tell you exactly who you are. They'll tell you how to sell who you are. See? They'll, they'll, they'll sell it to you. You're a commodity. You see? But only the maker of who you are has a right to tell you who you are. And he's told us in his word who you are. You are his treasure. Holy, righteous, reborn, remade. He'll tell you the truth, too. He'll tell you that you were a rebel. You are a rebel who is an enemy of God in your sin. And that had to be dealt with. He'll tell you the truth. He won't hold back. He'll tell you exactly who you are. But that you are redeemed. A rebel made child. Uh, another place to look is in prayer. Whether it's the soaking prayer, the intercessory prayer. A place like Open Church where they gather to teach and pray. Or in your prayer closet alone where you're alone by yourself. Another place to find out who you are is prayer. The third would be, and I'm sure there's many more, but the Lord's Supper. What a place to be a reminder of who you are. You know, and, and to, to, to go and to serve from a knowledge of who I am. Not, I'm, I'm trying to earn this. Uh, there is no one who is going to be standing up here. There's no usher who's going to say to you, um, hey, I'm going to need to swipe your credit card before we give you the Lord's Supper. Did you know that? There's nobody up here that's going to be like, yeah, I noticed you're taking the Lord's Supper today and you're paying by check. We're going to wait till that clears. Right? And there's nobody up here who's going to say, I, listen, I'm really going to need to see a list of sort of your sins over the last week. And if your list can fit on this index card, brother, you are welcome at this table. But if you need an eight and a half by 11, we're going to go ahead and ask you to come back next week. Right? right? But who of us doesn't feel that? Who of us doesn't feel when we come to the Lord's Supper, well, I've had such a rotten week, or I don't want to take the Lord's Supper unworthily, and I, I sort of have a half understanding of what that's all about, and I don't get this stuff. We felt this, to which I want to say, what? okay, if the standard for taking the Lord's Supper today was, have you earned the right to take the Lord's Supper, then one is, who would, which of us would take the Lord's Supper today? And the second question is, what kind of week do you have to have where you're like, Yo, I'm taking the Lord's Supper today. I just crushed it. St. Tom up in here. Right? Right? It's nonsense when you put it like that. 
if you come to the Lord's Supper, you come as a beggar in need of His grace. There's no other way to come. And if you come as a beggar needing His grace, then hear the good news. There is grace enough for the taking. For everybody who's kept more than they've gave, for everybody who's spent more than they've saved, there's still love enough for the taking. There's love enough for the taking. And when I get that right, when I get that in my heart, when that's burned into my retinas, the empty tomb that he loved me and loved me to the end, when I get that right, then and only then I'll serve and my service will make sense. He said, On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant written in my blood, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads and pray. And as I'm praying, the ushers are going to reverently make their way to the stations that they'll, they'll be able to help you uh, partake of the Lord's Supper reverently so just follow their instructions let us pray Father I thank you that you have loved us and you have loved us to the end and I thank you oh God that the guilt and the insecurity that everything from secular humanism to self-help to all the many world religions that attempt to somehow earn your approval and favor and all that stuff I put on myself, the names I call myself and the hurtful things that I, I condemn myself with, I thank you, God, that all of that is washed away in the great story of the gospel. You who loved me when I didn't even know to love you, I didn't even... I would have tried to kill you, but you died to save enemies and make them sons and daughters. Thank you for that good news, God. Thank you. Forgive me when I uh, serve you with uh, wrong motives. Forgive me when I sin against you with no matter the motive. And Father, help me to serve. Jesus knew who he was and help me to follow his example that he gave. Help me to be rock solid about who I am that I might serve you. And Father, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you. This meal will be nonsense to them. And I pray, God, they would continue to come back to this church. They would continue to learn about you. They would continue to ask questions and to get those questions answered. They would continue to seek after you until they too can know what it's like to feel like Peter, have you wash feet, have you humble yourself to serve us in that way and to receive with humility the great gift of your salvation. We want that for them. Many of us have friends, we pray God for them, that they would receive that great salvation. They'd humble themselves and receive, quit fighting you and striving with you, trying to earn what they could never, never get, but which is freely given. Watch over us as we come to this table, Lord. We come as your guests. We come as beggars in need of a great grace, and we receive.